0: talk about autism and moral responsibility. Although moral responsibility is a philosophical topic that has had attention from some of my colleagues for a a while, I actually have been paying more attention to autism uh, and coming at this topic from an interest in autism rather than from an interest in moral responsibility. And so that makes my work maybe a little bit different. Uh, I hope it means that I can contribute something. Uh, I have very generous funding from the Miriam Foundation in Montreal. They are doing fantastic work, uh, really building facilities to help uh, serve the autism community in Quebec, and they decided to uh, support one philosopher, um, and that, that was me. So I'm very grateful. So let's think about autism. What is autism? Uh, many of you will be familiar with the triad of impairment uh, in autism. We've got... Impairment in social interaction, related impairment in verbal and (laughs) nonverbal communication, and restricted, repetitive, and stereotyped patterns of behavior. Now this is the triad. These are the three categories from the diagnostic criteria. And there are different ways of thinking about (coughs) how these come about, and I think of these as cognitive models of autism. They're models in the sense that they're not really causal stories. They're certainly not causal stories that we can link to simple mechanisms that are identifiable in the brain. People do a lot of brain imaging work and they'll try to uh, figure out what's going on, what part of the brain is uh, affected or different in autists, as I like to refer to <coughs> individuals who are autistic. Uh, but there's still lots of very sort of instrumental posits that say, well, this must be what's going on. So, for instance, one uh, paper of a theoretical nature on autism refers to the self-other switch, right, As, and say it's going to be somewhere in this part of the brain. Well, there's, there's no switch, right? They're just neurons doing some work, but they can't really point to a specific thing. So this is very interesting and philosophically uh rich ideas about what's going on cognitively in autism. So a very prominent, the most prominent model is called the theory of mind model, right? Or mind blindness is the way uh, Simon Baron Cohen refers to it in one of his books. Uh, So that's the account that people with autism behave differently because they have more trouble than neurotypical people do, figuring out what other people are thinking and how they're feeling, given the visual and auditory and other sorts of input that, uh, that we all get. Another account says, well, what's really going on is an empathy imbalance. right? The, the behaviors, the, th- the thoughts, the impairments, the differences that we find with autism are really about uh, the fact that people with autism have a hard time figuring out what other people are thinking, but at the same time they have a very, very strong emotional reaction which can um, be represented or understood as an imbalance compared to the uh, neurotypical or uh, healthy community. Happy and Frith and, and others have a very, very interesting understanding of uh, what autism is in terms of central coherence. And this corresponds or you know gels very well with the sensory experiences that a lot of autists have, Um, that is, people often, when they're in high stimulation environments, a lot of visual input, say at a carnival, a lot of visual input, a lot of auditory input, maybe also at a a railroad station, something like that, overwhelming, maybe a meltdown, maybe unable to deal with things. Uh, Central coherence also can help us explain, us a Mm -hmm. different explanation than uh, theory of mind, for why it is that people on the autistic spectrum can have difficulty maintaining (coughs) eye contact. Getting a lot of visual information, right, uh, about what's going on, and they are getting a lot of auditory information in a conversation. And if you have weak central coherence, you can't put that together into a coherent picture. So you might shut down one of the senses a little bit in order to uh, focus on the auditory thing. I'm going to talk today more about executive function as a a driving factor. And uh, more recently, uh, Simon Baron Cohen has been promoting this idea, came out within 2002, of the extreme male brain explanation of autism. I have a bunch of research questions that interest me about this, and I'm concerned about the ethical, legal, and social implications of how we understand autism. I think there are choices to make about how we uh, construct our models of autism and that which one we choose uh, can make a big difference in terms of how we relate to one another ethically, the uh, social implications in terms of the workplace, and also uh, legal implications. And we've seen some people on the spectrum who are behaving in ways that you might predict, mm-hmm. right, given their difference or impairment. Uh, get arrested uh, and have very difficult uh, interactions with law enforcement. It's happened here, it happens more in the United States, and that's partly, I think, because of the National Autistic Society's uh, real push to try to educate the um, the UK police force. But I'm interested here uh, in following up on this question. How do different models of autism combine with various theories of moral responsibility? And um, there are... Uh, some real challenges here because as we approach this and think about how these uh, ideas combine, we need to consider how to treat people with respect, right? Because if we say, oh, you poor artistic person, right? You're not responsible for what we you do. We're going to forgive you for, uh, you know, violating this law or being inappropriate or something like that. Uh, that's really infantilizing and, uh, you know, not respectful at all. On the other hand, there are situations in which autism might make someone uh, you know, really not responsible because they don't see something or can't respond in the same way. And um, this is a, you know, a, a real dilemma that I think we need to keep in mind as we go through this. There are lots of ideas of moral responsibility. Some of these are, like the theories of autism, like the models of autism, uh, some of these theories can't really stand by themselves, but generally get combined. Uh, with others into a richer theory. Um, and when we put these together, uh, I think of this as the uh, sort of matrix, the control matrix for uh, the ethical, legal, and social implications of theories of autism. And you could see how they can combine in, in various ways, and they give us lots of boxes. So I have a paper forthcoming in, in bioethics uh, on reactive attitudes and theory of mind. And today I want to talk about Um, reactive attitudes theories in the context of reasons responsiveness and uh, how that connects with uh, the executive function aspect or or model of autism. So that means I need to talk about executive function as a way of understanding what drives the impairments or differences in autism and also uh, talk a little bit about reasons responsiveness and then see how these come together. So that's the next, uh, that's the map. So executive function is uh, what they call a top-down type of uh, mechanism or set of mechanisms that are required in order for us to get going on things and figure out what, what to do. so we have to when we have to concentrate, pay attention, uh, When well, we can't just go on on automatic uh, habitual responses. And there are some autism researchers who really think that executive function is what's driving the differences in autism. That executive function is what explains the need for sameness, a strong liking for repetitive behaviors, a lack of impulse control, uh, difficulty initiating new non-routine actions, and uh, certainly difficulty switching between tasks, which, particularly for autistic children, uh, any child can have uh, difficulty switching, okay, we're going to stop playing, now it's time to take your bath, uh, but it can be... Absolutely torture for uh, a child on the autism spectrum. So executive functions have three primary domains: inhibition, which has to do not only with inhibition of behaviors, but it's really described more with uh, concerning inhibition of cognitive processes, keeping attention on one thing and not allowing other things to come in. Sometimes it's about inhibiting uh your emotional response or your prepotent as they say uh response you may be primed to sort of say okay i'm waiting for mark to come in and when he comes in i'm gonna say mark how are you but it turns out that somebody else comes in and uh, I and say mark how are you because i was ready you know i can't inhibit that that response um working memory is also very significant in executive function that is uh, keeping active the incoming information for further processing. So you see something, you see (coughs) new information, and you have to keep that sort of online. Um, The number of elements you can keep online in that way can be uh, limited for people with executive function issues, and uh, it can be difficult for them to update the content of that working memory. Cognitive flexibility, about shifting when you get new information, moving from one Uh, task to another that's called cognitive flexibility, which also has to do with what's called verbal fluency, and I'll talk about that in a minute, and uh, it's understood that reasoning, problem solving, and planning are built out of these various elements, Um, and some of the literature that the philosophers and moral psychologists are familiar with, from Fred Cushman and Joshua Green, uh, work with inhibitory Issues, right, and and draw on that to explain the uh, responses that people have uh, and sometimes differences between people on the spectrum and others in how they judge moral responsibilities uh, when they compare, for instance, the trolley problem and the um, footpath problem. Uh, But if you're not familiar with that, uh, that's not a concern. But one way that people assess Executive function for and for anyone, but it's, this is a kind of test that is given to screen for autism in particular. Is the Wisconsin Card Sorting Test now? Here, uh, the test taker, the subject, is asked to put the test card on a pile, and it's given feedback concerning whether the sort is correct or incorrect, and. Uh, from that, they're expected to draw an inference about what rule is being applied. And during the test, after a few uh, correct responses, the uh, correct sorts, right. Uh, the test giver changes the rule. Right? And that is a test of how quickly the individual can respond to that rule, the new rule, the cha- recognize the change, figure out what the changes, et cetera. So the test card might be sorted by shape. You put the round on the round, or by color, um, I don't know whether they do it with a uh, number, but there's another test, or they do it the way you sort uh, based on whether there's a border or no border. So there, there are different, things, uh, different ways of doing that. And success, or you know, a high score on the Wisconsin hard <coughs> sorting test, requires that you're able to stop your current behavior in order to respond to the changed rule, remember and keep active the rules and objectives of the task, and also change strategies. Right? So that's the cognitive shifting. So that's a very rich um, discussion of a r- rich test of executive function. You also have the Stroop the task, um, and this requires task takers to say the name of the ink or the, the color, right, rather than the word that's there. So you're supposed to say uh, red, blue, red, a public gets some wrong, uh, you know, blue, green, rather than read out, out the words. And that also has to do with inhibition, because we're primed, if we can read, uh, if we can read the language that's there, we're primed to say, to read the word rather than uh, say the color that the word appears <coughs> in. Uh, and when you look at the comparison, if uh, and though there are some contrary uh, studies, it looks like uh, there's no deficit, um, bet- you know, no difference between neurotypicals and autists on this test, right? That really focuses on inhibition. Even though there is a difference in some other executive function tests, and inhibition doesn't look like it's a great uh, thing. Um, I just think it's interesting that you can do this in Swedish as well. Okay, uh, so in terms of <laughs> verbal fluency, um, you have to look for things in, in Swedish when you're uh, working in Sweden. So um, in terms of verbal fluency, we also see a, uh, a difference, and it looks like a, a deficit, and we sometimes call this generativity, right? We're asking individuals, a test taker, to generate options and uh, input. So HFA stands for high-functioning autism, uh, although some object to a distinction between high-functioning and low-functioning. But these are people who can do this test well, and they're reasonably well-matched with respect to verbal IQ and uh, other features with um, the controls. Uh, And as you can see, in terms of letter fluency, those on the spectrum can produce fewer words in a given time period, uh, beginning with P or M or R, they can produce fewer words that fall under these various uh, categories, animals, fruits, clothing, in the same amount of of time compared to neurotypical uh, controls. And Carmo and uh, colleagues broke this down into time periods and found that there's a convergence later on in the time period when people are generating these words. And they use this to suggest that it's not so much, or maybe not only, the ability to produce the words, but the ability to get started. right? And they have this initiation impairment hypothesis. It's not supposed to uh, explain all of autism, but they're putting this initiation impairment under the category of executive function. So it looks like the executive functions affected by autism are shifting or cognitive and cognitive flexibility, initiation, fluency, generativity, and working memory. And these executive functions are important for considering counterfactual situations, what would happen if I did this differently, seeing alternative paths, which, of course, is quite related well, should I do this? Will, would this be an effective way to uh, reach my goal, et cetera? And taking in and adjusting to new information about people and circumstances. And I want to suggest uh, a term, uh, and uh, I'd like to hear from the philosophers and others if it, maybe this is not a new term, but I think it might be uh, a way of, of getting at something that is significant, um, Reason blindness. I think that these executive function issues can... Uh, cause a kind of reason-blindness. So let's think about moral responsibility then, Um, just as a background to get us started. Moral responsibility is about when Mm -hmm. it's okay to blame or praise someone for what she did, what might excuse someone, and when somebody might be exempt from responsibility for any of their behaviors. Uh, And we certainly do things for which we're morally accountable. Uh, sometimes uh, you know, we all do things for which we are properly uh, to blame and for which we may be properly praised. And we certainly do things for which we are not morally accountable. We make mistakes. And I imagine in this picture we have a, a rare endangered snail which plays an important part in the ecosystem. And here is someone who is about to squash that snail. Now, it could be that if that person knew the facts that there was a terribly important snail... Under her foot, she wouldn't take that step. Um, and we may be super upset that this snail is about to get squashed, um, but that doesn't mean that she's to blame. So we do things that uh, are bad or good, that for which we may be blamed, and other things, even if they're bad, I'm sorry, you know, this is a terrible thing, but it's not your fault. Um, remember, as we go through that, finding that someone is not blameworthy. For a transgressive action, an action which is, you know, transgresses maybe our social expectations or legal expectations or uh, ethical norms, um, doesn't require that we like the action. We might say, you know, you're not blameworthy, I'm not going to blame you, we may still uh, not like that. We may say, hey, um, I'm not going to be your friend anymore because I'm uncomfortable. But that's different from, from blaming. We may even have to uh, restrain someone. Right? But that doesn't mean that uh, we've accepted the behavior. Um, so I want to talk about reasons responsiveness, which is an account of moral responsibility that some of you will be very familiar with. So here's a rough statement of a reasons responsiveness account. An agent is responsible for an action if she would have acted differently in the face of morally relevant reasons to act differently. And Reason's responsiveness comes in the context of another familiar uh, approach to responsibility uh, coming out of the work of the Oxford philosopher Pierre Strawson. And Strawson had this account, drawing hmm. from historic influences from Hume and Smith and others, uh, that when we have a reaction to a morally good or bad event or behavior, that, and we see it as a moral behavior, what's in, really involved there are our moral sentiments, our reactive attitudes. Right? So we recognize the moral value of an action uh, through these feelings. And uh, just very quickly, we you know, you identified three categories of reactive attitudes. We can feel gratitude, we can feel resentment, that's a big one for uh, this, that we can resent someone's behavior, uh, or we can forgive, we can feel love, we can feel hurt feelings. Strassen says, when we're not involved in the behavior ourselves, right, when we're just sort of thinking, well, about what, say, a politician did, or we read a news story, uh, we might feel indignant or disapproving. That's different from how we feel uh, with our friends and people that we're um, directly involved with we can also have assessment of ourselves in terms of these attitudes. We can feel bound or obliged. We can feel guilty or remorseful, uh, et cetera. And I would describe the reactive attitudes as motivating reactions to facts, or sort of these feelings that we have. Uh, and when we feel the reactive attitudes, we're feeling the moral character of reasons for acting. And, and very significantly, they are uh, feelings. And one of the challenging things about this that Justin recognized, but it really doesn't give a very... Uh, no one, I, I think, has given a very rich account of how this works. Um, there are going to be correct and incorrect responses. We can get them, get them wrong. But what people have to say about what makes an appropriate or inappropriate reactive attitude is that they're fitting or justified, aimed at a sensible target. Uh, Hume says they're natural and, and universal, um, and Strassen said they're natural or reasonable or appropriate. One of the things that's challenging about this is that it's very hard to say what uh, this all means, you know, what is it to be fitting, uh, but it does tell us that an atypical response is not going to be right, okay? So um, if you look up a uh, good specimen, I sort of searched good specimen, uh, in, uh, and I got this cow, Right, um, so really that's what we want is a good specimen of, of humanity right? and uh, somebody who, is, who gives the fitting the appropriate, the natural in some sense maybe the healthy uh, response so it's going to have something to do with uh, the bell curve it's going to have something to do with being a healthy cow so the point though is that a person <laughs> who doesn't respond to relevant facts in the fitting way, whatever that means doesn't have access to the moral facts And if you don't have access to the moral facts or the morally relevant facts, then you can't be held responsible for your action, like the person who uh, didn't know that uh, that terribly important snail was about to get squashed. So I want to draw a little bit on uh, a reasons responsiveness account by um, Brink and Nelkin, and they have this very uh, helpful chart here, uh, because we're thinking... I want to think with them that being responsible requires that you had a fair opportunity to avoid doing something wrong, and that requires that there isn't a situational, uh, you know, it doesn't, that you're not in a situation where there's no control, where you really didn't have any control over what happened. And it also requires what they call normative competence, they're not the only ones. Normative competence then breaks down into cognitive competence. You have to have the right thinking competence and also volitional competence. You should have uh, enough control over what you do. So let's think about this. Normative competence in Brink and and Nelkin's account requires responsible agents to be able to recognize and respond to reasons for action. And... To use uh, a vocabulary that will be familiar to some of the philosophers, um, it requires reasons receptivity. That's the recognizing. We need to be able to receive and understand, take in the reasons, and also respond to them. That's reasons reactivity, right? So reasons, re- um, responsiveness. Uh, the way a lot of philosophers talk about this involves these two things: reasons receptivity and reasons reactivity now let 's think about how an agent will call her a might fail to be reasons responsive on this account and i 'm thinking about this very sad face when you when you um, search for a sad face, this is one of the things you don't get a cow uh, you get this face and i 'm um, I'm imagining a situation in which this does not involve a snail, but i 'm imagining a situation in which there's this happy young child, and uh, as sometimes happens, you might play a game, maybe a peekaboo game and then there's a the child gets frightened right and're very sad and, and worried, or maybe something else happens, something in the background, mom leaves the room, and you didn 't notice but uh, now we have a, a sad child. And it, let's suppose also that it's appropriate, fitting, to recognize this as a reason for comforting the child or stopping the peek a game. Uh, so in this case, we'll suppose that the sad face is a reason for changing your behavior. And how might we fail to, might anyone uh, fail to be reasons responsive? Well, it could be that we don't see the relevant, available fact at all, right? If you don't see it, like you don't see that snail, then you can't be held responsible for, you know, failing to act. That might be an excuse. It could be that you see the fact, but you don't see it as a moral reason. Now, there could be a couple of ways to do this, right? This could happen. You might see the fact, but not have the reactive attitude that would be fitting for that fact. You might not feel the empathic sort of, oh my gosh, here's a sad child. I think that there's a second way that you might fail to see F as a moral, moral reason, a, a, a reason for acting, and that could be that you might feel that reactive attitude, but you might not see that there's anything you can do about it. right? So if, um, gosh, the the image that just came into my head was uh, on uh, 9-11, I remember seeing, you know, watching on uh, a screen uh, the terrible things happening in New York in particular and thinking, I I really felt the horror of the, you know, the tragedies going on uh, with the World Trade Center, but that wasn't a reason for me to act at that time because right? there's nothing I could do. Right, So I didn't fail to have the reactive attitude, um, but I did not see it as a reason for changing my behavior. Um, I was in Philadelphia, I wasn't in New York, there's nothing I, I could have done. Um, so I think there are two ways that A could see F but not see F as a moral reason. Um, three might not be conceptually possible, um, but, Perhaps A could see F as a moral reason but not find this motivating. Now, if you're a reasons-responsiveness theorist who thinks that the reactive attitudes are the only way to see a fact as a moral reason and you understand the reactive attitudes to be inherently motivating, when you feel that, that what that means is, right, you feel that uh, attitude, it, you feel motivated and because that's what it is to have that attitude, then you, uh, three, would not be possible. But we might call it, a kind of apathy. Uh, it's also possible that A could see the fact, see the fact as a moral reason, but just can't really be bothered, right? Or, or can't, or maybe she kind of wants to, but uh, they're potato chips, and um, so maybe you know pay attention to that instead. So that might be a kind of a, crazier, a weakness of will. I kind of want to do something about it, but I, I can't get myself uh, motivated. I can't marshal the volitional forces to go where I, I wanted to. And it could also be, as a fifth option, that A could conform her will in general. It's not a crazier, but can't figure out what the appropriate response to do is. If something I'm supposed to do here. I, I, I don't know, right? I don't know what that what that would be. Okay. So if we think then, uh, about executive function issues, and I have in mind executive function issues in the context of autism, how might that affect (coughs) reasons responsiveness in autism? Remembering that if you're not reasons responsive on the reasons responsiveness theory of moral responsibility, then you're not to blame, right? Then that would be an excuse. And if you're not Reasons responsive in a general or global sense that would actually be an exemption. We kind of don't want an exemption because people who have autism want to be grown ups, right? And want to be held responsible. I, actually, I, I had the great privilege of speaking to some autistic adults um, at the National Autis- Autistic Society in London on Monday, and um, they were very clear on this. Said, well, here's what I'm thinking, I said. What do you think? And they said, well, we, of course we want to be responsible. We're grown-ups. I hate it when people say, oh, you know, so, you, you know, I can't hold you responsible because you're not neurotypical. And I said, well, but aren't there times when you shouldn't be held responsible because, you, you know, because of your autism? And they said, yeah. Right? So they want some excuses, uh, but they don't want to be exempt. And I think that's reasonable. Uh, and that's the position that I'm going for. Okay. So remember, in autism, understood with this focus on executive function, we're concerned that there are lower levels or or deficits or challenges with respect to shifting, cognitive flexibility, initiation, fluency, creativity, generativity in terms of options, and working memory. And I already said something about uh, what these mean. And so let's look at this list of ways in which someone may fail in a particular instance, or perhaps generally, to be reasons responsive. It looks like one might actually apply to some cases, in some instances, for autism. How's that? Well, putting aside executive function, we know that people on the spectrum tend to pay less attention to uh, faces, tend to uh, be less cued into social input. But we can also think about the story I told, where this face was real smiley and fun, but then there's new information. So updating that information, in term, uh, using the uh, working memory faculties, uh, could be really hard. right? So someone might have registered one thing and not be able to sort of uh, update that that memory, may not be able to uh, make that cognitive shift to adjust behavior in response to this. Okay, so that that would be maybe um, not (coughs) seeing the relevant, available fact. Um, It could be that a sees F but doesn't see F as a moral reason. It's not gonna be because of a lack of affect, a lack of that reactive attitude. It would more likely be because of a difficulty seeing uh, alternatives, right, as in the case where I, I described my response to that, uh, that one tragedy where I, there was nothing I could do, right, although I had uh, a moral reaction. Three and four do not seem like things that would be uh, caused by autism at all. We know, for instance, um, that people on the spectrum tend to have a very strong response to moral situations when they, when they perceive them. Uh, however, in terms of generativity, which, remember, comes out of um, uh, cognitive flexibility and uh, verbal fluency, that generativity, it looks like it's going to be difficult for some to understand how to respond, <coughs> can generate different options on how to uh, change what's going on. So um, it looks to me like if they had taken in the relevant fact, they would have recognized it as morally relevant. But sometimes, some of the times, someone on the spectrum might not take in that fact, and therefore, has a, a weaker degree of reasons receptivity. Um, reasons receptivity is not going to be absent, but probably uh, could be impaired. Of course, it's very different for different people uh, on the spectrum. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard the, uh, Old saw, if, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. You can't generalize very well at all. But it's important to recognize that the impairment that we see is not the same as the impairment we see with the psychopath. The psychopath, famously, uh, is a person who can see all the facts and manipulate them, but doesn't have the empathic uh, response. And I actually, um, you know, th- this is a very uh, accepted... Understanding. I say the imagined psychopath because I don't know that much about psychopaths, uh, and I think uh, the philosophers have written a bunch about it. And when you uh, look at what they've written about autism, I get suspicious. So I'm a little suspicious that they haven't, you know, philosophers have gotten the psychopath wrong. Um, However, um, I'm a little more confident having spoken to uh, some uh, neuropsychologists this week. Okay. Um, Reason-blindness, in this way, the failure to recognize the reason, is very rare to be total. It's not gonna, people are not going to be totally reasons-blind. Um, it's going to be a kind of impairment. Uh, and, of course, we know that it may be possible to beef this up through cognitive behavioral intervention, uh, social skills training, and things like that. Um, let's think uh, A can conform her will generally, uh, looking at uh, number five, but can't figure out what to do in response to the specific circumstance. And we might be concerned then that A is not reason reactive. There's a reaction, but the reaction doesn't doesn't get into uh, play in actual active um, response. uh, And that looks like a kind of lack of phronesis, uh, lack of practical wisdom. Um, So there's a weakness in normative competence. It's almost always going to be partial, right? It's going to be in particular circumstances and not general. Um, And so I want to say that executive function disorders, as are found in autism in particular, may cause a kind of partial reason blindness. It's not going to be a failure of reactive attitudes and moral sensibilities like we find in the psychopath. Uh, And like visual impairments, reason blindness is going to keep some facts from being available. And we don't blame people for failing to respond to facts they can't see. Um, it's going to be a lot of variation. So, in in these particular cases, say in a, a legal case or understanding how a loved one's behaving, it's going to be very difficult to sort out when this applies and when it doesn't. Uh, but I want to say significantly, that we all have these kinds of lapses. There are all kinds of, there, we all have these circumstances in which we fail to see what's relevant and which we want to be excused for that. And so one of the points I want to make is that, uh, as, I can, as far as I can see, uh, I think the right response is, the right approach is to say that artists are not a different kind. And we sometimes see uh, philosophers and others saying, well, it's almost like it's a different species, a different kind of person. They're they're not. They don't. They're not like the rest of us. Uh, but in fact, I, I, what I see uh, when I put these ideas together is that it looks like artists are like us. They just make more mistakes, right? They they just have more of these excuses, not new or different excuses. Um, and that's going to be um, it's a little bit different from what we see from other philosophers. Uh, So I want to raise a couple of of issues uh, quickly as I'm coming to the end of of my time. I think we said 45 minutes, Uh, but um, I don't think I put anyone to sleep quite yet, so let me share a couple of of conclusions. So um, I think there's a very interesting issue here that we have a responsibility to engage in a moral community. There are things that I can't do that I'm not very good at, like baseball, and cricket. I'm just really bad at them. But I don't have a moral obligation to get better at them because being bad at baseball and other bat games uh, is not morally required of me. There's nothing wrong with. There's no failure. I'm not. I'm not even missing out on one of the great things of life, in my view, uh, by not being good at at uh, at hitting balls with bats. Um, but I think we are responsible for being good at certain things. And engaging in the moral community is one. And that means that it's just harder, right, for artists to do this. And I, I get, I'm concerned about this in a way, right? Um, that it looks like, uh, you know, if we find, and, and this may be, may or may not be a reason to rejigger the, our theories of autism and or our theories of moral responsibility, but on this picture it looks like autists have a harder job at doing what they're really responsible for doing. And that's different from having a harder job at doing something that, oh, well, okay, I just can't do that. right? I can't play the flute either, but it's not a big deal. right? Uh, but failing to be a member of the moral community, that kind of is a big deal. Uh, and so that really raises this issue. And I, I think it's th- this dilemma that I raised earlier uh, may be connected, I think it's connected, with uh, Hannah Pickard's uh, distinction dilemma uh, that she raises between saving and blaming. Uh, but that's perhaps something to talk about after. And there's a real concern, I think, um, when we look at theories that require us to be good specimens, And that require us to be good specimens in order to be members of the moral community. I think that raises some really interesting issues because when you type sick cow into an internet search, you get that. And um, if someone is different and has different or fewer responses, doesn't have those fitting responses, and we're talking about this not just in terms of, not just in terms of health, but health is an issue, but in terms of being able to engage morally That's a very interesting result uh, when you combine that with a concern to respect difference and the push from autism activists uh, to say, we're different but not less. And uh, so that's uh, another concern that we can talk about. Uh, And here are my uh, acknowledgements. My wife, uh, who has been uh, feeding me lots of ideas on this, a research assistant from Boston University, Ms. Bichari, who's a neuroscience student, um, and uh, people from Montreal, and from uh, University of Gothenburg in Sweden. So uh, that's it. Thanks. (laughs)